Teresa, do you have your notes for today's podcast? My dog ate them. It's Schmanners. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. And you're listening to Schmanners. It's extraordinary etiquette. For ordinary occasions. Hello, my love. How are you? I'm well. How are you, dear? Doing good. Had a lot of travel yeah. in the last, like, two weeks. It's true. Went to Max MaxFunCon East, which, let's say, thank you to Max Fun for having us there. Um, we got to meet a lot of wonderful people. Took some interesting classes, had some good food. It was lovely. It was great. Thank you to everybody who was there for making it a great time. Uh, We also traveled to Cincinnati this past week, and Mm -hmm. we traveled across the country. It's a time of transition in the world, my love. I'm looking forward to not being in the car for three plus hours at a time. That's going to be very good. Um, But that's not the kind of transition we are talking about this week. This week, we're talking about back to school. And before we get into the Schmanners aspects of it, let me ask you this. What kind of kid were you when it came to back to school? Were you always excited when school started? Did you hate the end of the summer? Um, I think that in my younger years, I was excited. Um, and then once I pr- probably got into high school, it was more just a complacency. Like, all right, time to go. But I never really hated it. Yeah, Did you like being at school? I didn't mind being at school. Again, the thing that I really liked about school were the extracurricular activities. Well, yes, we're both theater kids from way back. You have fun doing the after-school plays and choirs. and Exactly. So it did wasn't... Did you show choir? Sure did. Me too. Oh my God, we have so much in common. So it wasn't really... I didn't really hate school. It was kind of just a means to an end. We went to school so that we could do the other stuff. Were you a good student? <laughs> yes, I was. I was... An okay student. I never did my homework, but like I did well in all my classes because I'm very good at taking tests. But like I was always the kid that like while everyone else was like doing work in class, you just see him just like looking around the room, like tapping and fidgeting. And I mean, that's it. I have ADD. So like I did very well in school. I hated being there. Hmm. Still to this day, I'm not okay whenever somebody says, hey, you have to be somewhere between blank and blank. And I have no like... I have no control over but my you're own so, schedule. But you're so punctual, Travis McElroy. Well, that's because that's when I have control over my own schedule. It's when someone else says, you're not allowed to leave here for eight hours. <laughs> I'm like, what? What is this? A gulag? And I want to just like dig my way out of school. I don't recall having much homework um, other than when I was still taking math class. I would have math problems as homework. But other than that, I feel like I got most of it done during, you know, that last 10 minutes of class when most teachers let you kind of start on that stuff? I have one last question for you, and then we'll get into schmanics, because I think we've talked about this with my brother, my brother, and me. Did you have a study hall period? Uh, Towards the end of my high school career, yes, I did. Um, Mostly because I had already fulfilled all the requirements, and I think that one semester or quarter, whatever we did, I wasn't able to get 
a uh, teacher's aide position that I wanted. So I was just like, whatever, and took a study hall instead. See, Justin Griffin and I were sure that that was a myth. That, like, we've seen it on TV and in movies, but there was no study hall at Huntington High School. That was not a thing. As far as I know, that happened. If you or anyone you know has experienced study hall in school, please tweet at us. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into back-to-school schmanners. Now, this seems like such a big wide-reaching topic. Where do you start on a history of something like this? Well, I'm going to start with the history of public schools in America. Okay. Sounds great. I'm on board. You've got (laughs) me on the hook. Now reel me in. Well, so really across time, as I I just said, the history of public schools in America, I'm going to go back just a little bit. Okay. In a very general sort of way. Um, Most learning was... Most learning took place at home. Your parents taught you what they wanted you to know, basically. And really, at that point, I mean, if we're talking as far back as I think you are, you weren't really worried about, like, who knows what job you'll end up with. Like, your family had a farm, you were a farmer. Like, if, you're, if you got apprenticed to, like, you know, a woodworker, you're gonna, you need to learn what you need to know to be a woodworker. Right. And, you know, as far as like the family business goes, if you weren't interested in doing that, you had to go out and find someone else who would teach you. Yeah. But even then you were learning like a very specialized path, not really the education we have now where you have to be good and know everything. And like, you know, you can't just learn math in high school. Well, there were certainly professional scholars and thinkers and things like that. I mean, um, I'm I'm not going to say that everybody always learned a trade, but I would like to say that it, the vast majority of people were on some kind of career path, whatever that path may be. Um, and unless you were from a very wealthy family, you didn't really get the luxury of hanging out and just learning for learning's sake. Gotcha. Um. So the Puritans are really who's responsible for the public education system getting it, you know, getting off and running in the United States. Can you imagine why that is? No. (laughs) All right. I mean, you asked. (laughs) The Puritans wanted everybody to learn to read, especially because of the The Bible. Bible. They want to be able to read the Bible. Gotcha. Right. A lot of their religious institution relied on the on the Bible as a central text. So they wanted to make sure that everybody could read it. Girls and boys and everything. Um, boys were often taught a little more than girls just because of their place in society. So they often learned how to write as well. Um, Patriarchy. Yeah, but everybody kind of learned common maths and things like that so that they could go about their daily lives. Um, And the Puritans used this kind of centralized schooling as, um, as as a religious base to spread their religion. Um, So teachers were either were either parents who would take in several children, maybe not their own, so that they could kind of, like, prioritize the the learning and then other people could, you know, keep working fields and stuff like that, or they were often taught by ministers. The first public proponent of, um, of public education in America 
It's actually Thomas Jefferson. I've heard of him, yes. Yeah, he's, he's you know, he's pretty on the radar kind of dude. Well, ever since he started in Hamilton, everyone knows about <laughs> him now. Right. Um, but he was really the first one to say, like, listen, education is important to our continued striving for equality and democracy in America, and we need to find a way to use funding from taxes to educate the masses. Well, and yeah, I could also see we're having some kind of unified, like, common agreed upon, like, so it's not just like in this town they learn this, but in this town they learn this, and this state knows all about this, but this state has no idea. So having it a little bit more government run gives you a little bit more uniformity to it. Well, I mean... No? I mean, it does, yes. Everything that you said is right. But people at the time largely kind of ignored it. They were like, Thomas Jefferson and his highfalutin ideas. Is this why, like, when you hear about, like, Ichabod Crane in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and, like, you know, a school teacher comes in and everybody kind of looks down their nose a little bit, the school teacher? It wasn't like a highly revealed... It it always seemed to me when I hear those, like, you know, 1600s America, 1700s America stories... The school teacher is kind of like, we don't need a school teacher here. <laughs> oh, you silly school teacher. Is, was that why? Because they were like, yeah, this isn't a real concern. It's fine. They learn what they need to learn, and then we get to work. Um, I'm sure in some places it was, but mostly because you didn't really need any kind of degree or anything to be a school teacher. So there wasn't a separation between the community members and the teacher, other than the teacher was probably an outsider to the community. Ah, an outsider's boo yeah, in the 1700s. Uh, interestingly enough, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson graduated from the College of William and Mary, which is the second college to ever be established in the United States. What's the first? Harvard. Oh, okay. I've heard of that as well. Right. Oh, that's why there's that scene in 1776 where he's like, I'm a Harvard man. Well, I went to William and Mary, and they all kind of scoff at it. I get it. Oh, Right, yes. Now I know. Yes. Well, uh, Harvard was started as Harvard College in Newtown, what is now Cambridge, Massachusetts, in 1636. And the College of William and Mary in Virginia was started in 1693. So wait, for like 60, little less than 60 years... There was only one college in America? I mean, there weren't like a ton of states and a lot of people, I guess. But like, that seems like a long time to wait to make the next one. So like, if you were in any other colony and you were like, I would like to go to college. And like, okay, well, you got the one. You got the one option. You could go to Harvard or you could wait 60 years. Well, higher learning wasn't really a priority. Like I said, you had you had people who had skills that you could learn, and um, a lot of priests and ministers were trained in a, in a little more of sort of educational backgrounds. But other than that, it really wasn't a necessity. I guess that's true, and it wasn't like you were going to be like a stable boy, and they're like, well, first, uh, what's your degree in? Like, nobody was concerned so much about the degree as a job qualification. I mean, even doctors didn't need degrees. So, like, the college was just for learning, 
and not because you were trying to qualify for a position. Right. And there were definitely teachers and tutors and things that you could pay, right? I'm just talking about public institutions. Gotcha. There's always been, if you had the money to pay for it, you could get any kind of education that you desired. But it just wasn't as like centralized as like a college. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. So there, there were a lot of people who did have higher learning qualifications. They just received them at the hands of a tutor or some kind of private institution. So there were other places, Travis. You didn't, you didn't just have to go to one or the other 30 years later. But where did they go to play hacky sack on the quad? Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So moving on to the federal era of education, um, by the year 1870, all states had free uh, public elementary schools. So is this when we start breaking it up? Because I've also heard way back when of like the one room schoolhouse where it was like you went to that one room schoolhouse when you were like six to 18. Like they just had the one room. And now is this where we start breaking it up into this is your first, second, third, fourth, fifth. And then we actually no, that doesn't actually start until a little later when a man named Travis McElroy. What? When a man named Horace Mann, actually with two N's, oh, okay. M-A-N-N, um, comes into play uh, in the 1840s, um, and he wanted to base the school model of American schools on the, quote, Prussian model of common schools, which um, basically refers to the belief that everyone is entitled to the same content and education, so some sort of standardized educational system. Um, And in order to do that, he would have to do things like segregate children by age groups um, and develop grades, so not like one, two, three, four, but like the grading system of, of a points, right? So it was a little less subjective. Okay, so this was more based on which this is where we skew into areas that like we're not experts on, but like the development of a child's brain where like you can't teach a first grader the same thing you can teach a senior in high school. And also by the time that senior is a senior in high school They've been doing it for a while, and they've probably already heard it a bunch. So this way you kind of break up the steps that you're teaching that that kid rather than teach it to them all at once. Sure. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, I'm surprised it took them that long to come up with it. Well, in the in the one-room schoolhouse, there's, there's a little bit of a difference between this and Horace Mann's Prussian model method. Um you would have all different age groups and and learning levels in the one room. And the older students would be used to kind of tutor or mentor the younger students and help along with that. And, And that's why they could support such large classroom sizes, right? Because you had the older students helping students that needed help with reading where if there were, you know, there were really smart kids, they would move on ahead, and it was all just kind of workbook-based. Gotcha. Um, and then this Prussian model turned it more into an uh, in, like a lecture type. So in order to make the lecture appropriate, 
you would have to separate the people into their different levels. And this was done almost arbitrarily by age, not really by ability. Got it. Uh, But they did receive, under this Prussian model, a certificate of completion. Oh, you start getting degrees. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder Um, why it's called a degree. It shouldn't be called a degree because you're done. It's not by degrees. You're done. It's complete. It should be called a complete. You've received your complete. Perhaps. No, not perhaps. That's a dumb idea. They shouldn't do that. That's stupid. All right. I'm silly. So by 1900... 34 states had compulsory schooling laws, okay? Okay. Only four of those were in the South. Okay. Yeah. So education was mostly relegated to the more affluent northern states. But this was state by state, so it's not like somebody was stopping the South from having these compulsory laws. They just didn't have them. Well, they didn't have much money either. Okay. Um, so still at this point, if you're, if you grow up in the South, you're educated largely by your family or private tutor, um, if you're educated at all. Uh, and 30 of these states with compulsory schooling laws required attendance only until age 14. Okay. Um, which again, I mean, these, this is, that's enough time to cover kind of the basics, right? Um, so, because of these compulsory laws by uh, 1910... I, I also, I want to jump in and say, oh. too, because, like, we're talking about this, and it just occurs to me that I hear that, and I think, 14, that's so young. But that's also because now our our medical prowess has improved so much that life expectancy is longer. Yeah. And, like, if you think about, like, 14, but if you're, like, dad and the guy who ran the whole thing died at 40... Like, you needed to be ready to take over for him by 14. You know what I mean? Like, there was a lot of reasons that you needed to be on hand and working by 14. And they, you know, that you didn't have the luxury of waiting till you were 22 to be ready to enter the adult world. I suppose that's true. Um, I don't really know what the life expectancy was in 1900, though. But I, I, I just think that, like, I look back on that now in 2016 and mm-hmm. think... How unfortunate for those kids. Oh, it's like okay. they needed to work. They needed yeah. like they needed to help the family. So by 1910, 72% of American children attended school. Um, but still about half of those were the one-room schoolhouse model. Um, and in 1918, every single state in the union required students to complete elementary school. So at least elementary school. Yep. Okay, so the first major reforms um, come about in 1919, and it's called the Progressive Education Association is founded uh, with the goal of reforming American education. So this institution, uh, or education association, um, went about further standardizing the, the curriculum taught in schools, whereas before it was largely left up to the states because there wasn't any kind of federal money coming in. It was all state-run, tax-funded. Uh, tax and so it was very segmented about what you would get from community to community and school to school, and they started reforming American education with the goal 
of bringing everyone up to the same level. So just like I talked about earlier, of like we need to have some kind of uniformity so that the people in this state are getting the same education as the people in this state, as the people in this state, even city to city, so that everyone's kind of competing and on the same level. Right, which wasn't fully accomplished until 1954, when the U.S. Supreme Court announced its decision in the Brown versus Board of Education, ruling that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Because at this point, many states, especially in the South, but some in the West as well, um, supported segregated schools for not only African Americans, but Mexican Americans, Native Americans, like everyone was kind of separated into these different institutions. Um, and they were all taught differently according to either their ethnicity or their socioeconomic status. And the idea of the separate is inherently not equal is the idea of like, by separating them, you're going to end up treating them differently, which they did. So why not just put them all in the same place? Makes way more sense. And it's better for, like, humanity. Um, And, and of course, this uh, led to some racial tensions. And if you haven't seen the pictures of the little girl going to school in Mississippi, I recommend that you look that up on the Internet because it is a very important milestone where children from neighborhoods of lower socioeconomical status, usually African-American children, were bussed into more affluent uh, public school areas in order to try and bridge that gap. And this is when they needed to bring in like the National Guard, right? To like protect these kids? Yes. (sighs) Who boy. Yeah. And that wasn't that long ago, folks. And so then really the the kind of last big leap I want to talk about is the idea of the um, No Child Left Behind Act, uh, again, which was another attempt by the federal government to further standardize learning and create... um, Uniformity. Uniformity and also accountability. They didn't quite get it right, So later, um, there an act introduced called "Every Child Succeeds" uh, is is a little better. It's better worded, at least. (laughs) We're still working on it um, because there are just the scope is just so large. We're quite a large country, right? Um, And we're still working on it, and there's still there's still progress that needs to be made. Um, I personally. I'm a little more in favor of state-run standards than federal standards, um, just because I feel like states have a little more... It's just a smaller area, you know? This isn't like a states' right thing. Teresa's not sitting here like, I'm for states' rights. It's smaller scope is easier to deal with than larger scope. When When you just think about the sheer number of children in America who attend school, I think it's just easier to parcel them out into smaller groups in order to address it. I think, and this is an issue, I mean, we've got a kid on the way, and I've been thinking about schooling a lot. Uh, I think that there's an inherent issue, and I'm, I don't know, I'm not an expert, I don't know the solution to this, but an inherent issue of trying to aim towards the middle, where, like, you can't cater to the super smart, like, 
high-end kids because then the kids below that suffer and you can't cater to the kids who need the most help because then the kids at the top suffer so you're kind of shooting for the middle and hoping it all balances out and that means that the kids at both ends kind of suffer a little bit right you know it's it's very tough to create a balanced education system that's good for everybody at the same time which is why i'm su- i'm a supporter of just making the group smaller yes because <laughs> the smaller that it is the easier it'll be in order to cater to a lot more students um whereas if you're dealing with every child in america the ends fall off a lot easier just because there's so many and i think that something Teresa and i and hopefully everyone should agree on is teachers are amazing and should be compensated and taken care of so much better because just in the end of my schooling, and I can't imagine how much worse it's gotten now, seeing like 40 to 50 kids to one teacher and that one teacher barely being compensated fairly was very upsetting. I think that if we could get back to like one teacher, 20 kids, one teacher, 15 kids, and that teacher being treated with like respect and care and, you know, compensated fairly and all of that. I just think America will be a little bit better place. There are a couple factors to this, and, and you mentioned increased classroom size as one of them. Uh, one of the underlying factors is during the recession in America, um, a lot of cuts were made to school funding. And so a lot of teachers were laid off. Um, and then because there wasn't a lot of money to pull from, there weren't as many people becoming teachers. So now there are less teachers who are willing to work at lower rates because the funding just isn't there. So it really all has to be fixed. <laughs> yeah. Long story short, it all has to be fixed. You heard it here first. This is the expert McElroy analysis you come to expect for trainers. Teresa and I agree, it all has to be fixed. Uh, we're going to be right back with some questions from you. But first, here's a word from some other Max Fun shows. I'm Jesse Thorne, and I'm curious about Jonathan Van Ness and his show, Getting Curious. How do you pick something that's going to be on Getting Curious? My only prerequisite is that, is that I actually need to be curious about it. It seems like there is really no question that you won't ask. That is correct. I'm a fearless Katie Kirk in that way. Getting Curious, the show about everything. Download it wherever you get podcasts. And if the Martha Stewart of Max Fun tells you to download a podcast, you just got to do it. Attention, you're up. This fall, Maximum Fun is bringing a bunch of your favorite podcasters to London. Catch Judge John Hodgman, International Waters, and Bullseye all recording live episodes at the London Podcast Festival. We'll have fan meetups and we'll be joined on stage by a glittering array of celebrity guests. The London Podcast Festival runs September 22nd through 26th, and you can buy your tickets right now. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Okay, we're back. We've got some questions. And, you know, maybe I think Teresa and I will probably have a couple just random, like, I remember when I was in school, <laughs> of advice. This first one comes from Kelly. Should I allow my kid to take their cell phone to school? Uh, different schools had different policies, and I would encourage you to check their policies um, and defer to those above all. Um, but other than that, I think that if 
you insist that the child keep the cell phone off during school time, not just on vibrate because that can still be distracting, but off during lesson time, then I don't really see a problem with it. Um, especially if you know, you maybe you're, um, you have to work out rides after school or going to other places after school or, um, if they have some kind of medical emergency they need you for, something like so that. So it's 2016. Everyone's got cell phones. Everyone's got some. Um, but they, they, the distraction quota is very high for especially a smartphone. Um, and so off is best if they're allowed at school. But, you know, and I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. And it also occurs to me that cell phones aren't new. I mean, I remember being in school. I mean, cell phones are new, but the risk of taking something to school to distract yourself with isn't. Right. Yes. You know, like back, oh, God, I almost just legitimately said back in my day. <laughs> back when I was a kid, it was, oh, God, it's made, it all dates me so much. It was pogs and, like, gigapets and that kind of thing. Right. But, like, you still were like, should I let my kid take toys to school? And now it's cell phone, which I think is an even more enticing distraction. But I also see it as a chance to kind of have some responsibility lessons of, like, I will let you do this as long as you are responsible with it and don't get in trouble with it. Don't use it for distraction. But when you do. And don't break it. And don't break it. But if that happens, then we have to renegotiate this contract. So, like, if you can prove that you deserve to have it, you get to have it. And if you can't prove that, you don't get to have it. That definitely makes sense. But, again, I encourage you to look at the electronics policy for your particular school. This is from Ridge Dog on Twitter. I have finally made it to college. Hooray! Yay! But making friends is proving difficult. What's the best way to start a new friend group? I would say join a club. Join something, especially in college, um, where you tend to live on or near the campus. You have a lot of free time after your classes. So find something that you're interested in that you can find like-minded people. Going, especially if you're going away to college, if right. you're leaving your hometown, it makes complete sense that it's especially hard because I think that's the first time. If you look back at like when you were a kid, when you were like in preschool and you know kindergarten, elementary school, you made friends be due to proximity. If there was a kid on your street, your best friends now, <laughs> yep. right? Like it wasn't about shared interest. You were both kids around the same age, so your best friends. And then when you go to college, you know you're just starting to be an adult. And that's the time where it's like, huh, I can't just like grab someone by the arm and say, we're best friends now. I got to find people that like the same stuff as me. Got to find people that like I get along with in real life, Mm -hmm. you know, and not just like as we play pretend. So it is a little bit harder. But, you know, I most of my friends came because I was doing theater in college. So like we do shows together. We'd hang out in the green room. We'd hang out in class. That's the other thing. You make friends in class. Talk to somebody. Absolutely. Especially if you're in a highly specialized program, like Travis and I were. Um, He was in a theater department. I was in a musical theater department in a different college. So, like, my class size was very small. Um, I I think that we graduated five people from the program. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we graduated, like, 20. Something like that. So I knew all of them intimately. You know, and I think that that's that's a really great place to start. And the important thing to keep in mind is if you're feeling this way, everybody else is feeling this way, too. Like the majority of, you know, freshmen, freshmen, 
freshmen, the <laughs> majority of freshman students or starting out students in college are also thinking, so what do I do now? Right. And so, like, you shouldn't be afraid to be like, hey, so what What are you taking? Oh, yeah, I'm taking that, too. Like, oh, do you want to, yeah, let's sit here and we can compare notes and work together. Like, they're also looking to make connections. And if they're not, move on to the next person. There are so many to choose from in college. This is from Jordan on Twitter. I'm an adjunct professor and insist on going by my first name. Am I good to go or is this too casual? In Are you the cool dude? <laughs> Hi. Uh, please. Mr. Jordan was my father. Call me Jordan. Oh, come on now. No, no, no. I'm just saying if, if Jordan, if you do it in that voice. No, no, no. <laughs> Don't do it like that. Um, I would say in a liberal arts education environment, it is perfectly acceptable. Yeah, I called Tom Tom. Like, I know Tom as Tom. Like, that he was my, he, by the time I graduated, the head of my theater department and, like, my mentor and taught me in, like, four different classes. I never called him Mr. Orr. Well, like, that would feel so weird. I do have to say that in our education, we we went to a fairly liberal and progressive section. True. We were theater, in theater. Yes. Theater really does kind of tend to try and um, break those kind of boundaries. But I, I think that as long as you're in a liberal arts education environment that is all I've ever heard of. Also, as the teacher, you kind of get to dictate that. Right. Like, if you say, you know, I, you know, hi, I'm Jordan. I'm going to be your teacher. Now, that that's... The, okay, this is the only caveat. If this is like you're starting out and you're a little bit nervous and you don't know how you're going to do as a teacher, you might like a little bit of distance with your last name. It might help. I mean, there's something about the Mr., you know, whatever that helps. But I think if you want to go by your first name... Do it. You're in charge. It's your class. No one's going to tell you otherwise. Like, I agree. Go for it. Don't don't feel like um, like you have to go by your last name. You can go by your first name if you want to. This is from OK Cat Mom on Twitter. How should college roommates set living rules when they're total strangers? Any suggestions? This is such a good question. I did so bad at this my freshman year. Teresa, do you have any suggestions? Um. It's important that you overcome that barrier as quickly as possible because the more that you talk to your college roommate, the easier things are going to be for both of you. Um, No one is a mind reader. They can't assume what it is you want or need. So you have to communicate your needs, uh, set up expectations so that everyone can have a good time. It's not rude to say the things that you expect of another person. And it is beneficial to discuss things as they come up instead of waiting until it's th- there's no other option but a blow up. And if I might add a little personal note from me, Travis McElroy, to you, I don't know that this is universal advice, but it's advice that I would give anyone going to college. Don't assume or try to force that your roommate is going to be your best college friend. Okay. Now, Brent and I, uh, you might know from Trends Like These or YouTube's Brent Floss, he did the music for uh, Schmanners. He and I ended up being best friends, but we were not roommates in the dorms. I was roommates with a different guy, and I decided, like, day one, like, I don't know anybody. This guy is going to be... And I'm like, I really tried to force the issue in the first week. And, like, you know... You're just living with them. Now, if friendship comes of that, awesome. Right. But, like, 
you're going to be living in this shoebox together. Maybe don't force it. You need to have a, a business-like working relationship that may or may not develop into something more. This one is from Marini on Twitter. How much is too much class participation? At what point am I taking opportunities away from other students? This is a this is an interesting conundrum for me um, because I, for one, have always been very forthcoming when it comes to classroom participation. Were you a Hermione baby? Not not quite. But I think that it is it's a good sign that you're showing concern for the other students because what would really happen is if you if you were kind of bogarting the teacher's time you wouldn't concern yourself with no. the other people at all so this this question is is a good step in the right direction of saying you're probably not doing that i mean and i would also advise never be afraid to ask a question exactly like if you have a question to ask don't worry about like well but i've i've already asked too many questions if you have questions Ask them. But if the teacher is looking for an answer, maybe give everybody else an opportunity first. And if no one else volunteers, then. But like you jumping to the. the, Because the only overall negative I can see is if you jumped in with the answer every time, but you were the only one getting it. The teacher might use that as an object opportunity to say like, okay, well, let's all walk through it together. But if you jump in the answer. Cool. Well, you get it. Awesome, but nobody else in the classroom is getting it. Right. I think that's that's a really good idea. Um, I think it's also a good idea that if you if you feel this feeling that you may be stifling the other students' opportunities, talk to the teacher about it. Ask them how it is that they feel about your classroom participation. Make it clear that you are very interested in the subject, and that's why you participate so much but you want to show concern for your fellow classmates. Um, And if the teacher is like, listen, I really appreciate all the stuff that you do in class. You keep doing you. That's great. Or say, you know, maybe back off a little bit so that I can see where the other students are lacking and what they need. And then once everybody catches up, we can really get this going again. But no matter what, don't ever worry about other people in the class making fun of you for being interested in the subject or participating in class. Those people are not your friends. They are mean. Don't worry about them. You get the best education you can. Ask all the questions you want to. Answer all the questions you want to. Because eventually, you will leave school and you will never have to worry about them again. <laughs> and you will be better educated than they are. Participation. I, and I Okay. <laughs> you know what? Well, I, so this is a personal story. I went back to school. Um, at, so I graduated with my theater degree. And I wasn't doing anything with it. And I thought about for a while going back to school for psychology. And I wanted to get my master's in psychology. So I went to Marshall University in Huntington for a year to get all the prerequisites to qualify me to apply for a master's degree. Now, I didn't end up doing that because I remembered like, oh, yeah, I hate being in one place for eight hours a day. (laughs) But I was back in school at like 24, 25, taking classes with 18-year-olds. And they just talked during class. They were on their cell phones. They just weren't paying attention. And it drove me bonkers because i just kept thinking like hey you're paying to be here you need to you want to do this thing do you want to do psychology you need to learn this and i wish i could go back in time to like 18 year old travis and point him at 24 year old travis like be more like him when you were 18 (laughs) so instead of sitting in botany class and ignoring everything the teacher says you take notes (laughs) you pay attention (laughs) young man because like that's the thing is 
what I wish, here's my advice that I wish I could go back in time and say, school is not a thing you need to get to the end of to be accomplished. School is the thing you want to get the most out of, and then you are accomplished. That was a very eloquent turn of phrase, Travis McElroy. Thank you. I can do those sometimes because I went to school. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, theater degree. Um, This is from Molly on Twitter. Being forced to introduce yourself in class suggestions. Uh, this is the kind of thing where, like, everybody stands up and says their name and, like, where and they're something from. something interesting about yourself. Something interesting. Teachers. Uh, I don't know how I feel about this. Well, I understand why teachers do it. They're trying to foster a sense of community, get people to participate in class that, and yes. things like that. Um, and one of the first barriers is knowing people's names. So... Because you don't have to wear name badges at school, and, you know, at college you don't. Maybe in high school or elementary school you do. For a while I feel like we did. Really? Anyway. Okay. Um, it, it can be difficult to learn your classmates' names, especially if you're maybe not working at, like, you know, those big lab tables. If you have individual desks, you're kind of separated. So... Some advice. I would say it always behooves you to speak loudly and clearly um, so that you don't have to do it again. (laughs) And if you're made to stand at the front of class, casual, light eye contact. Don't look down at your feet. Don't, like, look up at the ceiling. But also don't, like, stare anyone person in the eye. Kind of scan. I'm Tom. Scan (laughs) the eyes of the room, I would say. And if nothing else, if that makes you nervous... Look, six inches above everyone's heads, they'll never be able to tell. That's what you do in theater. You don't look at the audience. You look at the audience, kind of. What I meant to say earlier when I said I wish teachers wouldn't do that. What I meant was that general, like, tell me something interesting about yourself. Because we used to do this at Cincy Shakes. Every first read, we'd go around, but we were given a very specific prompt. Like, remember the first movie you remember watching with your parents. Right? Or something like... If you were one mythical creature, what would you... Like something very specific. Because Mm -hmm. you don't know what kid in your class... You don't know how creative they are. You don't know how shy they are. So like saying, tell me something interesting about yourself is so open-ended that it could leave kids going, "I I don't know, there's nothing interesting about me. But if you ask like, what's your favorite food... Everyone has a favorite food. Right. And I think that that's a good go-to if you find that the, the prompt is something interesting, your favorite food, your favorite book, your favorite movie, um, you know, those kind of things that are, that are more into the facts area and less into the maybe interesting area are just fine. Because if you speak loudly, clearly, confidently, you probably won't have to say it again. Um, one last question, because a nine-year-old Travis would love to know the answer to this, too. This is from Saltines on Twitter. How to get to sleep when you have a test the next day. Oh, boy. Um, this is going to sound kind of like Hermione. A little goody-goody. I don't believe in cramming for tests. Because the fact of the matter is... If you've spent all semester or quarter, whatever it is, learning it, the two to six hours before the test is not going to matter. You not are, only that, it's not as practical. Because right. I used to do this where I'd cram all, like literally, you know, think, figuratively, but practically, cram all the information in your head. You may hold on to it just long enough to do the test, 
But that's not the same as committing it to long-term memory. So you're really doing yourself a disservice if you just look at your notes right before the test, take the test, and then instantly forget everything. So if you are worried about your grade for the test, the best way to get a good night's sleep the night before is to do all your studying way beforehand, (laughs) not cram. But if it's an anxiety issue, if it's a general testing anxiety problem, there are different resources online, breathing techniques, meditation techniques, um, and even something as simple as just admitting and saying out loud to someone, this makes me anxious, acknowledging the problem without trying to bury it can really help somebody fall asleep. And as someone who has massive anxiety insomnia problems, and still to this day, like I have, I I can remember being like six years old and being unable to fall asleep. Now, twenty six years later, I still have the issue. And for me, part of it is a feeling of lack of control mm-hmm. that makes me feel very anxious because, like, I don't know how the test is going to go. I hope I know enough. I don't know what's going to be on the test. So, doing small things that you can control, like pick out your outfit for the next day, make your lunch ahead of time, you know, do the th- make sure your backpack's ready to go, all the things that you can control do that so that you can give yourself just a little bit of release of like, but I know I've got that done. I know I've got that covered because for me, the anxiety always came from like, I lay down and close my eyes and instantly think about all the stuff I needed to do the next day. Right. And like, so do what you can when you can, and then don't worry about the stuff you can't do. Because like, if you've done all you can do to prepare, then you have nothing else to worry about. And I mean, there are also other physical things you can do. You can uh, do some exercise to physically wear yourself out. Um, You can make sure that the room is very dark and distraction-free. Put your phone away. Put your television, don't leave the television on. Put your computer away. Those sorts of physical things can also help you, you know, fall into sleep maybe when you're not realizing it. And, you know, some people theorize, and I... I'm a fan of this theory. You should not, like, study laying in bed. You should not, like, watch TV laying in bed. You shouldn't do things in bed that, like, keep you awake. Bed for should be for sleeping. Because, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I find that if I do the things that make me stressed, like if I'm laying in bed studying, I then get into bed and I'm thinking about studying instead of sleeping. Um, so just I can see how that could be difficult in a in a dorm room where yes. you may not have a lot of room, but there are always usually community areas in dorm room in dorm facilities and you know the library and things like that. So you could find ways around it even if you don't have a lot of furniture in your own room. I think that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to everybody who sent in questions. Um, if you have topics, if you have you know you know, ideas for new episodes, let us know. You can tweet at us at SchmannersCast, S-H-M-A-N-N-E-R-S-C-A-S-T, at SchmannersCast on Twitter. You can email us, SchmannersCast at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group. Just search Schmanners and you'll find it. Um, and I'm Travis McRoy on Twitter, and she is Teresa McRoy on Twitter. So if you want to, like, tweet at us directly, please, by all means, do so. Um, go check out all the other amazing shows on MaximumFun.org. This week, I think you should check out, let's say, well, I just was on an episode of Baby Geniuses, so maybe check that <laughs> out, because that was very fun. It is not uh, safe for work. I uh, There's cursing in it. It's not like a super filthy podcast or anything, but 
maybe don't listen to it with like your six year old. Um, I was also on an episode of Jordan Jesse Go recently. Maybe you could check that out. You're gonna love Jordan Jesse Go. They just did an episode with Cameron Esposito, who I'm also a huge fan of. Check that out. And Sawbones, because we just love Sawbones a lot. I do love Sawbones. Uh, like I said, Brent, Brentelfoss Black, did the music, the intro and outro music for Schmanners, and he's also like one of my best friends or whatever. Um, and so Kayla, thank you to him. And Kayla M. Wassel did all of our uh, beautiful artwork and thumbnail art, so thank you to her. And as always, I want to say thank you to Emily Post. I didn't get to all of the quotes and things about, you know, uh, sending children to school the first time that I maybe wanted to. But I'm going to post some of those maybe from the Schmanners Twitter. Yeah, or in the Facebook group, you know. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. If you have other stuff, if we talked about stuff on this that made you go, well, I have thoughts on that. Facebook group, Twitter group, as long as everybody, or Twitter group on Twitter, <laughs> as long as we all, you know, address them with our good schmanners on and we approach them like, let's have further discussion and don't tell anyone they're wrong or anything mean like that. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's going to do it for us. Uh, oh, one more thing. We're doing the live show in uh, Huntington. Candlelight show with my brother, my brother, and me, Sawbones, Still Buffering, and Schmanners on September 30th. Those tickets are at candlenights2016.b as in boy, p as in paper, t as in tom, dot me. Uh, so candlenights2016.bpt.me. There's only a few left. Like last I checked, I think like 40. So they may be sold out by the time you get to them. But if they're not, and you want to come to Huntington, West Virginia, on September 30th to see four really great podcasts, you should do so. It's going to be super fun. So I think that's going to be it. Join us again next week. No RSVP required. You've been listening to Schmanners. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.